If you would open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, we're going to read again, hear again, the story of the resurrection. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you when he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as I said earlier already, I'm so glad you're here today on this Resurrection Sunday where we're going to remember what the women arrived to see and find at the tomb on that morning when it was empty. And that's been our theme this whole weekend. Remember. You see it on your worship folder. You see it on the screen behind me. Remember. On Good Friday, it was remembering that Jesus died for us as the innocent man for the guilty. And if we don't make that connection this morning and remember that he is risen too, his death goes down in history as one of maybe a good teacher, a martyr, maybe a failed revolutionary, but not as savior of the world. So as we talk about remembering this morning, I want to begin with a question for you. And here's the question I want you to ask and, and think. You don't have to answer out loud. Please don't, actually. You can think about it. Here's the question. What are you prone to forget? What are you prone to forget? Is it where you parked your car? Anyone? (laughs) Is it what you had for breakfast five minutes ago out there? Is the password to your Amazon account? Ugh, that's a hard one. (laughs) Ah. How many passwords can the human brain remember? I think none, actually. That's how I feel. Unless it's password, P-A-S-S-W-R-D, right? I have, it's hard. We forget so many things. For me, it's actually, for me, it's my keys and my wallet. So I actually have them bugged. Did you know that? Uh, It's something like this. It's a little air tag, they're called, and you can put them on things. Actually, my wife has me bugged. She put them in there. (laughs) But it's in my wallet because I tend to lose my wallet. Inserted into my wallet is this little device that's connected to my phone because I forget where I put my wallet. Find my wallet. You'll need to unlock your iPhone. <laughs> Try it again. It's looking. It's nearby. 
did you hear that? She said, it's in your hand, dummy. <laughs> she didn't really say that. But, but you, heard it, you heard it ding, right? You heard it ding. That's pretty slick. But what happens if I lose my phone? I guess that's another question. Find my phone. That doesn't work. That doesn't work that way. But we all know our brains don't work as we feel they should. And we're prone to forget things. What are you prone to forget? But you think about the story now as we transition to it. Didn't the women, the first women to the tomb, need to be reminded that Jesus, did they need to be reminded that Jesus would die and rise when he'd already been teaching them this? Why did they need to be reminded? Had they actually forgotten, do you think? I don't think so. I think they needed to be reminded because they didn't actually understand the reality of the resurrection, the necessity of the resurrection, and the power of the resurrection. It was too unbelievable for them to register in their minds until after it had actually occurred, like a surprise pregnancy announcement when somebody comes and says, we're pregnant. What? 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 Like an all clear from the cancer doctor. Like a surprise 60th birthday party. It, it takes time to register. Oh, this, this, this really happened. The resurrection this morning, you may not have forgotten the claim to the resurrection. I mean, look, you're here, right? You remember. But let's, let's register it again this morning. Let's, let's ping it again this morning like my phone does my wallet as we remember again the reality, the necessity, the power of his death and resurrection as we enter the tomb together. We're going to look at just three things this morning, three things this morning to remember. So hopefully you've got your outline, you've got your scripture open to Luke 24. Let's remember the first thing together. Here it is. Remember to not look for the living among the dead. We need to remember to not look for the living among the dead. It was the first day of the week. The story records. The gospel records here that a group of women went to the tomb at, at deep dawn, is what the language actually says. It means this, the earliest dawn, probably as soon as they could see enough to get outside and go. And what they were going to do was prepare Jesus' body for burial. Now, Matthew tells us they weren't sure how they were going to get in, but nevertheless, they went to the tomb that morning, and maybe they assumed the guards would allow them entrance and roll the stone away. But when they arrived there, this massive stone was already rolled away. It was a miraculous event and activity, as another gospel tells us. It was like flicking a crumb off your face was so simple. The angel flicked the stone away. And they meet these two men there, these angels in dazzling clothes, as Luke describes them. And they were terrified, totally frightened and bowed down, which is how everyone responds in the Bible by seeing an angelic being that are created beings, reminded, be reminded. And they ask a probing question of the woman. They ask him this really interesting question. It's actually kind of a loving, joyful rebuke to these women. It's a redirection. It's, it's a correction of their course. Uh, the angel was kind of pinging them back, saying, wait a minute. Wait a minute. And they were counseling the women. They were, they were pastoring the women, you might even say, these angels there. And what had the women done? They'd made a mistake. They had forgotten. They had forgotten what he had said, and they, they were searching for the living amongst the dead. They were looking for 
the living amongst the dead. As verse 5 says, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? This was their problem. They had forgotten what he had said. They, they couldn't register the reality of a resurrection. They could not wrap their minds around it. They were looking for the living amongst the dead. One of the things my wife and I like to do from time to time, maybe I've said this before, I don't know, but we like to go walking in cemeteries. It's kind of weird, right? Like, what? That's kind of weird. A couple years ago, we visited um, the American cemetery, it's called, in Natchitoches, Louisiana. I think it's the oldest in the state. Uh, yeah, oldest cemetery in Louisiana, purchased 1737. And it was just fascinating to walk around, not only because there was these amazing trees with all this moss hanging down, and, uh, but it was just really fascinating to walk around and, and, and just take a look. Why do we do this? I think part of it's because we like to, as we go through these cemeteries, and we don't do it every weekend, just so you know. That was the last time we did it a couple years ago. Um, it reminds us of the brevity of life. It reminds us of the brevity of life. But it also reminds us, if you've ever been through a cemetery, it reminds us of people who've come before us. Many living decades and sometimes centuries in a, in a cemetery like this, centuries before us. And a lot of times there's interesting and encouraging gospel messages on, on some of the gravestones, and we like to look at those and think of them and think of those that lived the faith before us. But when we enter a cemetery, when you ever enter a cemetery, it's for one reason alone. It's to see where dead people lay. That's the only reason. The women were looking for Jesus where dead people lay. They couldn't possibly believe that Jesus' body would not be there or they would not have gone there to where dead people lay. But that's the very thing they were doing. In some ways, they were denying the resurrection with their presence, even if they were sincere. And maybe you're here today. And to you, coming to the church means nothing more than walking where a dead Jesus still lays. That's possible. Or maybe you don't doubt the reality of the resurrection you're here. Maybe you even think it's possible, but you don't live actually as if it's significant in life. Maybe you're here today respecting grandma's tradition or looking forward to the ham mom has made after service. Maybe you grew up in the church and you're walking down memory lane today. I want you to do an exercise with me. Not a stand-up and sit-down kind of exercise, but an exercise of memory, of thinking, right? I read this week another pastor with this exercise that he tried, and I thought it was fantastic. And actually, it's going to benefit all of us, not just those that might be here and not trust the resurrection today, but all of us. But first, look what Luke says at the beginning of his gospel. Why does he write this thing? He says this. And inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Certainty. I'm going to write an excellent orderly account so that you can know with certainty what has happened. Now, we, like everyone else in the world, 
think that people that came before us are not as smart as us, or we're not as smart as us. Not as progressed as us. It's just not true. Were they different? Yes. They could not ping their wallet, no. But they were not, they were different, but they were not less intelligent than us. Luke says it here, I want to give an eyewitness account to you. And so these women in our passage are not anonymous. He names names, why? He's expecting people to think the claim, the claims of this book are just too incredible and that they seem too impossible. And so, you know what, you can go ask those, those women. Oh, and Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross, you can go ask him. And Peter, who ran to the tomb, he names names. So here's our exercise. Imagine this, and this is true, the Gospel of Luke was written probably 45 years after the event. That's, that's the age I am now. So we're talking, let's pretend that it was written, or a book was written, let's say, in the year 1976. Now, my parents were obviously alive in 76 when I was born, too. My, my parents were alive, and they're, and they're both still living today, actually. 45 years ago, that's not that long. The Gospel of Luke was written 45 years after Jesus resurrected. Now, imagine there was a book written in 1976. It's 45 years ago. And that book claimed that George Washington had come back from the dead. Can you believe it? <laughs> and he had been walking around Youngstown, Ohio, where I was born, in 1976. And this book came out and made this claim that he was seen. And it said he actually talked to people. And he was even there for about 40 days before he left again. What would people do who read that book today? If they read that book today, well, what would they do? They would ask people who were there. It was only 45 years ago. Did that really happen? Did George Washington show up in Youngstown, Ohio in 1976? They would ask. I mean, it would be as easy as asking uh, my parents. I could ask them, did that actually happen? And I mean, if my parents and others who were alive at that time said, you know, I never heard of that and I lived there. Never heard of that. What would happen to that book? Would we still be reading it today? No. It would be absolutely gone. It would disappear because it would have been discredited by those who had been there. No one, nobody would believe it. Now, think about this. Thousands of people, thousands of people read Luke's account of Christ's resurrection only 45 years after it happened. Well, in 1 Corinthians 15 was written earlier than that even, closer to the death and resurrection of Christ than even the gospel of Luke, which, which speaks 1 Corinthians 15 of the resurrection, why I mention it. Now, if you just read this text 45 years later to the event, would you just believe it and give your life for it and die for it? No. You would go and find out. And the area that it was talking about was not a very big area in the Middle East there, around Jerusalem it would have been really easy to disprove, I extremely easy. You'd go and ask a few people, and the book would disappear if it was disproven as false. That didn't happen. That didn't happen. The opposite happened. Thousands of people began to believe immediately that this did happen, and they lived for it. 
and they actually died for it. Why? Because there was a real living Jesus that many saw alive who were still living themselves. That's why this book is still here. Because eyewitnesses saw it and lived for it and passed it on. That's why we're meeting this morning. It's not just grandma's tradition. It's truth. It's truth. He lived and raised. They truly had gone looking for the living among the dead. So my question is, are you doing that today? Are you walking through a graveyard not realizing that life has happened actually? That God broke into time and space as a human and did something radical through his resurrection? Or how about you, Christian, who call yourself a follower? Switching gears here, do you believe and absolutely believe in the resurrection but live a life that is lacking the joy of it? Have you forgotten the gospel? The women, the women come to the tomb, don't they? They come to the tomb out of duty, probably, out of good moral responsibility, according to their tradition, and I'm sure a sincere love for Jesus, too. But they leave with wings under their feet. They leave fleeing and running from their, the Gospels record, astonished, transformed, never to be the same, leaping and bouncing Transformed from an encounter with the risen Lord, the risen Savior, not dead. Are you looking for joy and fulfillment and life amongst dead things? The Bible calls those idols. Many times they're even good things, good things that we turn into God things. We try to make them give us more life than they're really meant to. Has the resurrection lost its grip on your life, Christian? Remember, the one called Doubting Thomas looks at Jesus and says, my Lord and my God. Remember this morning, it really happened. That's the first thing. The first thing I wanted us to remember. Let's look at the second. Remember that he had to die and rise. He had to die and rise. What's fascinating about the angel's words to the women is that they imply more than just the fact that they couldn't register the miracle. It's more than that. They also didn't understand his death. That's why Good Friday is just as important as Easter. Look at the verses to see the central word here. It's verses 6 through 8. They said to them, he's not here, but has risen. Remember he, how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remember his words. Now they knew he had died. They saw him hang there. They saw his lifeless body taken down. But they didn't understand the meaning behind it, that this must happen. That's the key word there. This must happen. He must be delivered into enemies' hands. He must die. He must 
rise. See, we can have this problem even in the church. You can believe the wholeheartedly that Jesus rose from the grave and not understand that it was an absolute necessity. He had to die. He had to die and raise, the angels say. And actually, this is the message that's the most insulting in Christianity, that he had to die. Every other religion of the world has teachers who come and teach you how to live. Everyone, every single one. They come and teach you how to live, and if you live this way, that is how you earn God's favor. That's how you find the good life. And what does that do? That feeds on our natural pride, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, give me something to do. Give me something to do and I'll do it. And then the teachers die. And maybe their death is honored and maybe their words gain traction, but that's it. That's it. They're done. Jesus died out of necessity and he rises out of necessity because we needed, you need a sacrifice for your sins. That's why he must die. That's why the angel said, don't you remember? He said, he, he has to do this. He must die. What that means is that all your church attendance, all your community service, all your good works, all your giving won't earn you or gain you favor. We are too lost. We are too sinful. We are too broken. He had to die. It must happen, they said. And if that idea this morning, if it's repugnant to you, you're in good company with the women at the tomb. The angels had to remind them, remember, he told you this must happen. He had to die. And again, it's what transformed them. It's what changed them. They're somber. They're walking to the tomb out of duty and good works. Maybe it even felt like a grind to them. I don't know. But when they remember the gospel... And it begins to register for them that he must die as a complete payment and a sacrifice. They stop from their doing, and what do they do? They go run and tell. They stop all of their frantic doing and busyness, and they get out of there, and they go, and they tell. He, he, he's not there. Something big happened. Matthew, the angels even say, well, go quickly and, and tell. There it is. Tell his disciples he's risen from the dead. And behold, he's going to go before you to Galilee, and there you're going to see him. See, I've told you. Go tell. I've told you. Go tell. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell the disciples. They dropped everything they were doing, all their works and goodness and, and, and commitment, and maybe it was a grind for them. I don't know, but they dropped it, and they ran to tell with joy. If your Christianity is joyless, if getting out of bed for a church on a Sunday morning is a grind, and you somberly walk in as if you're entering a graveyard to anoint a dead body out of duty, you don't understand. He must die. He must raise. He must resurrect. You've forgotten it. Or, or don't have quietly grasp the gospel entirely. It hasn't registered for you. 
the good news of the fact that he must die and must be resurrected means that you must have complete salvation in him alone. There's no other way. He must die, the angels told them. It's complete deliverance. Well, you might even say to me this morning, yeah, I'm a Christian. I know he had to die. I believe he did. And I know he had to raise for me. But are you living as if you know that? Here's two symptoms to look at today. To see if you're living as one who has forgotten that he must die and must raise. The first one's self-pity. Do you live in a constant state of self-pity? Or of disappointment, you might say. You know, I've lived, a, I've lived a pretty good life. I've been a good Christian. And things always go wrong for me. It always, go, it always goes wrong for me. Nothing ever goes the way I want it to. It's like God has forgotten me. I don't deserve this. I deserve better than this. Oh, really? Do we? Do you? If that's the case, Jesus didn't need to die for you. You're living as if he owes you something. He owes you the world. When John writes in his gospel that God loved the world, the world needed him, and so he died for it. Self-pity, do you know, it's, it's actually a form, it's really strange, but it's actually a form of self-righteousness, self-pity. I deserve better. He didn't need to die for me. <laughs> Have you thought of it that way? It's one symptom. The angels are telling the women, he must die because you don't actually deserve anything because you can't fathom the depths of your own sin. You can't fathom it. Your lostness, your brokenness. And the, the women couldn't even fathom the solution to it in that moment. But if you understand, he must die and must raise. That means you have the freedom to admit, yeah, I don't deserve much. But you know what? Jesus lived and died and raised so that I could have everything I truly need. I could have him and his love and his acceptance and his crown and his home and his security and his future. Everything I truly need is right there in him. That's one. Here's the other one. Self-pity's one. The other one's kind of this idea of, oh, beating yourself up all the time. Self-loathing, self-hatred, whatever you want to call it. Ah, yeah, I'm so stupid. I'm such an idiot. Maybe you've got that, 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 that uh, monologue that runs through your head sometimes. Yeah, I know Christ died and raised, but I should be better. I should be better than I am. I should truly live for him. I should be a good person. But what do I find in myself? Or someone comes along and criticizes you, and rather than just being a little sting in your life, like, oh, that kind of hurt, your whole world comes undone with the smallest little criticism. And you implode and fall apart. Yep, she just confirmed for me what I already knew. I should be living better for Christ, and I'm not. I'm a horrible person. What does that person need? You too need to say, yes, I am sinful, but remember, he must die for you. He must raise for you. And he has, and if he was willing to go through the greatest loss of life, of favor with the Father and experience, whatever that experience was like, paying an eternal debt for eternal sin, an excruciating pain, and paying off an eternal debt for real sin and sinners. If he's done that, how much must he love you? 
Don't just remember the fact that he raised. Remember that he had to for the sake of saving you. That's our second thing. Our second thing, he had to do it. We, we, there's no way to redeem this world without it. Here's our third and our final one this morning. We need to move also from remembering to living in the reality of the resurrection and Jesus' living presence. Move from remembering, so not just a memory, not just nostalgia, but to living in the reality of the resurrection and Jesus' living presence. So it's possible for real Christians to say, yes, I know he was raised, and I know he had to, he must, he had to die and raise for my sins. And to say all that, and to truly believe all that, and to still be treating Jesus like a distant, lost relative that you just remember. It's totally possible. That could be you today. The memory. The memory and the remembering of what Jesus has done needs to become a living reality of his presence in your life. It can't just stay a memory. If he's really living, he's, he's physically present in a real place at this time. If he's really alive in a real body, that body is somewhere right now. And if he's God, his spirit is actually available for all of us right now. He's present. He's here with us. But do we live as if he's distant? Do you live as if he's distant? Or do you sense his presence? Or have you forgotten that he is available as, and as real as the person sitting next to you right now? If you have an empty chair, look the other way. <laughs> He's that real. Or do you only hear his voice like echoing from some other floor somewhere? A couple years ago, I was at Kaiser in Sunnyside in Clackamas. And if you've been there, you know they have this giant parking garage. That day a couple years ago, I was late to my appointment and have you ever been in a parking garage when you're late? It's a lot of fun, isn't it? <laughs> I was late to my appointment, and the parking was crazy that day, and I was whipping around those floors, up and down those back and forth, looking for a parking spot, and I finally found a spot. I just whipped my car in that spot. I put it in there. I locked it. I ran out. I sprinted to my appointment, and I just made it. They were, oh, we were about to cancel your appointment. We were glad you just came in. I was so proud. Like, yes, I made it. Sweating, my blood pressure was like 200 over 100. I was like really in good shape. <laughs> well, you know what happened, don't you? Do you know? After my appointment, I went back to the parking garage. I had forgotten where I had parked my car. So I picked up my wallet and I said, find my car. <laughs> it didn't work, obviously. No, I didn't have that capability at that time. You've had this happen, haven't you? And it's one thing, it's one thing if you're at Freddy's and you can just kind of eh, 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 one of those, right? Oh, it's over there. You can have your alarm and a listen. When you're in a parking garage and you honk your horn, you can't tell where it's coming from, actually. <laughs> at one moment, it sounded like it was upstairs, so I ran upstairs. 
and I honked it again. But then it was downstairs, actually. I went upstairs, and I ran downstairs, and, and the car wasn't there, so I did it again. Now it sounded like it was two floors up. At one point, I'm standing there thinking, I'm just going to have to wait here till I'm the last car in this lot. And I will not be able to go anywhere in this stinking parking garage. I'm stuck. I was panicked. I felt hopeless. At that last moment, I was there like dangling over, don't do this, in the middle of the parking garage with the wall and the, you know, the hole that goes down the middle. I was dangling there and I was doing it. And at one point, I got a noise without an echo. I must just have been in the right spot. And I finally found it. Do you know how good it felt to get in that car and drive home? I felt, I felt redeemed. <laughs> I felt saved. I felt delivered, mobile, and homebound. For some of us, we believe in Jesus. We believe in Jesus, but in our life, he lives like on a different floor of the parking garage. He's like an echo. I'm sure you can kind of hear the echo, and we know he's somewhere around there, but he's distant like an echo reverberating sound off the walls. Sure, at one time it felt like we were kind of riding together and where we were together and doing great, but now I just can't seem to find him. And now Jesus for you feels more like a memory than an actual delivering, living, transporting, present Savior. I know that. And if it feels that good to find your lost 2008 CRV, what will it feel like to find Jesus? Maybe the first time today for you. Or as a Christian, move from memory to active, living presence. Some of you need that today. You have to look again at the empty tomb and remember, but not as a distant echo of history, but a living reality, a living reality. You see, the angels are pushing the women. Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? They were prodding them. They were pushing them. They were counseling them. They were pastoring them. Easter does that to us. Why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? It pushes us beyond memory to the fact that he really is alive. He really is risen. It's not enough just to know and believe. You know why we know that? Because Scripture says even the demons do that. They probably have better theology and know more about Jesus than we do. They know it, and they even might even believe it's true. You have to also taste and see. You have to taste and see. The psalmist wrote, Oh, taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Now, we've used this before, but uh, I think it was Jonathan Edwards who used that idea of, you know, I can tell you how sweet honey is, right? I can even bring it and show it before you and try to describe it. But until you taste it yourself, you have no idea what sweet honey is, do you? You have no idea. You have to taste and see that the Lord is good, to know his living presence, not just as a distant echo in memory, but a real risen Savior. Or in our metaphor, get in and drive, right? You have to remember for him, listen for him, pursue him up and downstairs, pursue him. Not work to earn his favor, but invest to know him. And it's the common means of grace. It's not flashy, it's not sexy, but it will take you where you need to go. His word, his people, 
his spirit, praying out to him and crying out to him, and then persevering in that for a lifetime, and his presence will grow in your life. These things will not only bring you a memory of Jesus, but actually Jesus. You'll move from an echo of a memory to presence, from empty tomb to a passenger. Maybe you're here this morning, and you were kind of like that first example of thinking, yeah, I'm here, I'm here, but it's like walking to an empty graveyard, or to a graveyard. How would you respond if today, though, you're feeling, you know what? There is something here. This gospel written so close to his death, these people that lived and died for this, this message that's still here and transforming lives, how would you respond? that's you today, I would encourage you, speak some words to God. Prayers aren't necessarily magic, but if there's something in your heart and in your life going on this morning, I would encourage you, speak to the Lord. Say something to him. Here's a sample of what that prayer could look like. Jesus, help me believe the evidence for your resurrection. Help me to understand what it means that you had to die and be raised for me. I know that truly in my heart that I need a rescuing, a salvation, a deliverance that comes from outside of myself. Jesus, that is you. Please forgive me for my self-pity, my self-righteousness, and all of it rooted in my own sinfulness. May the resurrection become for me not a distant memory, but may your living presence become a living reality for me now and forever. Give me the assurance of salvation today. And if that is the true words of your heart, as we even said in that, from my heart, you can know that assurance today. The risen Christ, the tomb can be empty for you today. And the fact that he must die for all of us can be real for you today. I encourage you. That's the thought of your heart today. Speak those words to him. For the rest of us, let's all pray now. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you today for what you have done. We ask, Lord, that you bring it to the foreground, the horizon of our life right in front of us so that we can't deny that we see again with fresh eyes the fact that the tomb was empty, the fact that The women came and the angels so gently said to them, why, why, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? Help us not do that. Help us see you as living, real, active in our lives. And let the truth and the reality that you must die for us not demolish us, not make us think less of ourselves, but think of ourselves less because we think of you more and what you have done. And Christ, I pray if there's someone in here today who is far from you, but who has an awakening of soul and heart. Spirit, may you complete that today and give them the faith that the empty tomb was really empty and that Christ's sacrifice was real and true. May we sing out with gratitude now for the grace that redeems lost sinners like you and I. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.